tell him about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? I've been drinking green tea all goddamn day! All of our team. Creatures of the night! Hello and welcome once again to Gag Reel and our special yearly spooktacular event. It's just a regular episode. This is the podcast where we analyze and talk about, to the point of ad nauseum, uh, comedy movies and comedy television, where we ruin jokes by sitting around and kind of talking about them too much. But I love it. I am your host, Ryan. And I'm joined, as always, by Will. Creature of the night. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> How are you doing, Will? Uh, well, it is astounding. Time is fleeting and madness is completely taking its toll. But okay, guys, we got to listen closely. T- not for very much longer. We've got to keep control. Well, actually, I mean, I think we got like 40 minutes left. So <laughs> it's going to be a little longer. Hopefully, I won't go too crazy doing the time warp. Today, we're going to be talking about the 1975 feature film adaptation of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is an interesting one. And it's been a while since I've been to a Rocky Horror Midnight shadow screening kind of deal. I I don't know if there's an official term for those, but um, been a few times. I've seen this movie quite a handful of times. Always a delight, but always a little baffling. And I always am a little confused in some parts of it. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm excited for this to be our, our Halloween-y spooky time episode. Yeah. But yeah, I guess we, we've talked enough and I think we should get to doing the, uh, the time warp, as you said. again nah i don't like that uh so will i I talked a little bit about my history with with this movie this is something i think i watched for the first time in in high school and then i think when i turned 21 or something like that i remember going to um going to a bar around halloween where when they did one of these midnight showing kind of deals um it was in downtown Bryan. Had a lot of drinks. It got a little blurry. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, it was a really good, weird, wacky time of just being surrounded by a lot of people that are, are reveling in this uh, this kind of strange but fun relic of the rock and roll, rock opera era. But yeah, I'm curious what your history is with, with the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, not, not, not even nearly as much as that. I think it's at some point in college, I had to have been under the influence of something when me and a bunch of people watched it. It was like five or six of us were all at, uh, my apartment 
two of uh, my roommate's friends would like knew it inside and out. And I was kind of sitting there like I, I had, it, it couldn't have been alcohol because I was sitting there like utterly perplexed. Like, I feel like I'm missing something. <laughs> and, um, and you know, if it was, if, if it was alcohol, I would have just been trying to join in, but, uh, it had, it, it, it definitely had to be something, uh, stinky and green. I'm guessing mm. because, uh, yeah, I was just, Ale. yeah, there you go. <laughs> because I was just, I was feeling like I must've missed something earlier in the movie, like the whole movie, but I had a good time watching it. I just, I never really went back to it. I remember a few years later, you know, seeing a, you know, like, uh, watching a couple of like the, the songs at some point, but yeah, I've never really, uh, I never really got to see it live. I, uh, I don't have much of a history with the Rocky Horror Picture Show, sadly. Which I think is going to make this fun because, uh, you know, after we talk a little bit about our impressions here, I, I want us to try to attempt to break down the plot uh, of this movie uh, and, and see where that goes and where we have head-scratching moments. But trying to look at it from a more kind of analytical perspective here, and from a more like kind of comedy podcast focused perspective, mm -hmm. there, there's a lot of fun that they were having in, in this general filmmaking that I feel like makes for a lot of like kind of chuckles. You know, it, it's a very fun presentation of what I would assume um, is a very fun stage musical. It's uh, it's super playful constantly in the way it tells this story in the you know this kind of fourth wall breaking fashion and i i mainly love the narrator when he jumps in for the first time after we meet brad and janet um and they always do this kind of side swiping transition every time he comes on screen yeah and uh he just he's in this very bizarre kind of uh, library. It's like, I, I don't know if he is the librarian of the world and holds all of its stories, including the, uh, the great Denton affair, which <laughs> is what he's reading from when he's telling us this story. I, I find his very over the top performance really great at kind of, I guess, getting that comedy tone tone in from very early in the more in the movie that you don't really, I feel like the Brad and Janet opening doesn't, 100% puts you in the tone that uh this is supposed to be funny at all. There the like I guess there are a few choices in that opening scene that kind of hint at it and you're thinking wait is this a is this a joke or not? Um like you've got the uh the American Gothic people in the background and um and then like just like the court like not the court but like the backup vocals on damn it, Janet. The uh, the monotone Janet. Richard O'Brien, yes. And you're just thinking, wait, is this is this is this is clearly a comedy, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's definitely when the criminologist steps in that you're just like, okay, this is straight up wacky. I mean, we've already said a few times, and everyone who knows this movie knows this. It's kind of a weird mess, but I've always kind of liked that about it. That it's just about getting to the next fun song. And kind of putting you in this weird vibe and just kind of about this overall feeling of kind of sexual liberation and yeah. like goofy good times. It's not afraid to just kill a character off without you fully even realizing who that is or <laughs> what's going on. 
And, and there's so many kind of questionable choices when it comes to the costume design. And apparently that was like the costume designer not really like getting the vibe that the stage, the, the play was going for. Makes a lot of sense. Apparently the, the costume designer just wanted more of a punk rock aesthetic, like or they thought that would be fitting or maybe that's just what they liked. Uh, and I think that's why we have the uh, the alien Transylvanian people that are watching uh, here and there when they decide to put them in the scenes. They, they're in the most bizarre kind of get up uh, that doesn't match with everything else or the <laughs> like kind of sci-fi horror aesthetic. But yeah, there's just lots of little choices like that that I feel like make this what it is. This kind of slightly head scratching but super catchy tunes and just over the top performances i don't know it's, it's just it's a good time uh if you don't really try and kind of figure it out and think about it yeah don't do that since you didn't have much of a history with it and you, you said you haven't really watched it much since uh you know your kale days uh <laughs> what what did you think about this viewing i had a lot of fun watching it all i was thinking for the most part was uh man, this would be a hell of a live show. And then even more so, it's just like, I feel like they just, uh, this, this, a lot of this stuff was made for the stage. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. I'm sure a lot of those like kind of turn to the camera and talk were, are directly from the, the play. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I definitely enjoyed it. It seemed like the budget was stretched a few times. <laughs> Um, and it also seemed like um, Susan Sarandon is a better alto than a soprano. Going for Janet here. Uh, from mu- from a musical perspective, I, I, th- I think some of those some of those high notes were uh, a little high. <laughs> but uh, overall, I thought I had a lot of fun watching it. I, I think it might that might be partially why I think this has grabbed on to the kind of cult midnight kind of theater kid audience i feel like is the schlockiness of the um performances is like they didn't go for what a lot of musicals did at the time of like kind of overdubbing with um i mean these these are like overdub but all the vocal performances are of the cast and i feel like they didn't do a crazy amount of takes it's really raw kind of black box vocal performances and dance performances yeah they yeah. definitely did not work very hard on the choreography and it's so it's not like it's not super some tight. big 1950s you know like west side story or mm. uh or um what you call it a music man thing with like entire towns getting together and doing these perfect choreographed things like when they're doing the time warp like half the half the background actors like are just uh, look like they're looking around and just like Oh, yeah, we're supposed to be doing perfect thrusts here. And I think that's like partially kind of what makes this great is that because of the kind of lack of caring, it just it allowed like Tim Curry to be as eccentric as possible and just give the most bizarre deliveries of some of these lines and some of these songs. And uh, they just they were able to go super eccentric with it. Oh, yeah. It just it's a unique vibe that I don't think that many other kind of big budget well i shouldn't say big budget. that that many other kind of two screen um adaptations of musicals really go for it it reminds me in a lot of ways of like a outsider art where they're just like somehow we've been given this money let's just have a lot of fun with it (laughs) i think so 
So, come up to the lab and see what's on the slab. I see you shiver with anticipation. But maybe the rain is really to blame. So I'll remove the cause. <laughs> but not the symptom. Well, I want to now attempt to break down this story uh, from, <laughs> from memory for the most part. We'll pull up Wikipedia if we get lost, but I'm curious how much we gleaned from this and kind of understand it. Uh, but feel free to write in to gagrepod at gmail.com if we're idiots and we should have understood all of this. Uh, but okay. we, you know, the, the movie begins, right, with uh, with, with the new newlywed. We already kind of talked about this. Uh, it's a wedding and uh, it's friends of Brad and Janet. And then, you know, uh, Janet catches the bouquet. Brad likes the way that she beat the other girls to to catch the bride's bouquet. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. now they decide to get engaged and that's why we have the first musical number there. Oh yeah. Um but after they are now engaged, they decide to go see the man who began it. Began when they, it, yeah. When they met at his science examine yeah is that what of, he said it almost sounded like he said exam it yeah yeah i think that's what he actually says but you're supposed to you know fill in the lines that he's saying exam it. yeah <laughs> i don't know <laughs> but uh, yeah, but yeah they, they gotta go see dr everett scott yes uh out in you know mystery land usa they, they don't give like states or anything it's just no. they start in denton usa denton <laughs> the, USA. the denton affair Mm-hmm. Their spare was, you know, low on air as well as the criminologist uh, notes. Yes. And so they got to use a phone. And there's a light, <laughs> there's a light over at the Frankenstein place. Before I forget that, that one of my favorite moments of the movie, for some reason, uh, I always find it really funny when people really far away are lip syncing uh -huh. and the music is like just as loud as it would be if they were right in front of you. And so riffraff out the window, <laughs> lip syncing. Like I, I, I don't know why I laughed so hard. It's kind of, maybe it's why uh, I find the um, the advertisement for the flea market Montgomery video so funny is because Sammy Stevens is way in the back doing it at some point. I've always found that really funny for some reason. And uh, yeah, I thought I, I thought that little moment was pretty. I do like his vocal part there, though. But yeah, that, uh, you know, there was part of me while I was watching this. I was like, oh, they're going with these fun kind of cheesy zoom ins. This is hilarious. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure they were being playful with it, like the DP. But this was like just the style at the time. I had to remind myself, like these zooms were very commonplace in 70s cinema. Oh, absolutely. There's so many zooms for like dramatic moments in this movie. And it, it works so well. I feel like it probably aged better than the way it looked in the time. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I love that zoom in on Richard O'Brien, who's I, I, there's a lot of little vocal moments he, he has through the movie that I feel like kind of make the songs. Yeah, but uh, but it, yeah, so there's a light. And so they go up to this castle and sing this really sappy, cheesy song with uh, and um, and then knock on the door. Yes. Riff Raff opens up, lets him in. 
and is very dismissive about the phone idea. Um, pretty much everyone in this house, you know, just kind of is like, well, let's forget that you keep wanting to use a phone. Let's just ignore that and string you along for uh, an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know the time warp starts pretty quickly after they enter the house. And they, what Brad and Janet think like, oh, okay. So these are just people throwing a party. These are not space aliens. Um, <laughs> they have They're clearly a, not aliens. They have a big banner up. It's an annual Transylvania bash, I think, something like that. Or convention. I forget what they, yeah, it was, they actually uh, call it. I think it was Transylvania convention. Uh, and, you know, we, we learn later on that these are alien folks. So it's revealed at the dinner scene. This is what I was talking about earlier with the costume design. This is, I mean, I kind of like that they weren't obvious that these are aliens, but I am confused on the, like, the party hats and everything. Like, other than, you know, what Frankenfurter says later and that, you know, he just wanted this to be a big good time. He always wants to have a good time. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on, on these Transylvanians costumes? No, I don't really have any thoughts. <laughs> it's weird, though. Am I right? Yeah, okay. It is weird, though. You are right. And I like I don't know if that gels with the '50s science fiction horror trope, unless there's a few RKO movies I've never seen that involve villains in this kind of getup. It, it, it seemed a little weird for the vibe. No, I definitely think this was the first step towards um, the like we've had homages so far of uh, you know the the '50s, uh, the '30s through se- '60s mm-hmm. sci-fi and B movies that it's referenced, and I think this was the first step towards the uh, the glam rock um, ah. inspirations. It definitely yeah is of that era. I, I see that. Okay, so after the time warp, I feel like lyrically it doesn't make a lot of sense to you in this moment. It's it just seems like they're talking about partying. And, and sex, I guess. Later on, at the end of the movie, they, they make it make somewhat sense. Uh, a little bit. A little, a little bit. A little bit. I actually did a little deep dive into people arguing over the meaning okay. of the song. Yeah, but uh, overall, most people agreed it's just, uh, you know, like uh, getting rid of inhibitions and mm. just the prelude to uh, sexual freedom, I guess. It does hint you in a little bit to, uh, and this is getting probably too in the weeds for this. Um, I think her, uh, Columbia, the, yes. the girl with the short red hair, into her relationship with Meatloaf, Eddie Mann. Uh, <laughs> the she, loaf. She, she has a little verse in there that talks about meeting someone, you know, and then uh, her life kind of becoming a party after that. You know, it, time was never the same after that. Mm-hmm. I think she's talking about her Meatloaf, Eddie Mann. It's possible. Yeah, Although then, that guy was in a truck, not a not a. Not oh a my gosh, you're right. Okay, but we we're getting too uh, too stuck here. We we need to introduce Doctor Frank Inferter here after <laughs> um after you know the Brad and Janet are kind of like you know, they don't know what to do. There, there's weird partying going on. Janet's Janet uncomfortable. Wants to leave. Brad's Brad like, saying, hey, no. it, it can't be that bad. Do you guys know the Charleston? Or I forget what he says. Yeah, that's. I think that is it. Or maybe not the Charleston. I'm going to assume sort of it's the Charleston. Uh, and then Frank and Ferda, we get this great zoom in because he like is coming down the elevator slowly behind mm-hmm. them, behind their backs. And then zoom in, Tim Curry's face, iconic performance. I feel like this made his career. Oh, yeah. How'd you do, I? See you've met mine. 
faithful hand in hand. He's just a little broad dime because when you not, he's. <laughs> I like this song a lot. I like most of the songs here. I think that's another reason why this movie has has held on to so many people and why it has this cult status. Is all the songs for the most part are really catchy and really fun and like are. I think a, the a, only yeah. I think they're a good kind of uh, embodiment of that retro to the 50s kind of vibe that was going on at this time, you know, especially into the early 80s. You had Happy Days, and there was just a kind of lot of look back to the early era of rock and roll. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of the sound they're going for here, and that's Meatloaf's whole shtick, at least on Bad Out of Hell. Uh, and, and so he, he speaking fits of so that, well here. I was thinking this as I listened to the soundtrack a few times this week, and it's just like, um, what this soundtrack would have been like had, um, what's his name? I'm gonna make sure I get it right, but uh, Jim Steinman, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, the writer, writer of, of uh, Meatloaf's, uh, yeah, Meatloaf's mostly his, his whole career, the, the Bad Out of Hell albums in particular, yeah, yeah. uh, ha had that. If he had gotten, you know, like uh, his hands on this uh, this soundtrack and like rejigged it, <laughs> I think it would have been even more, uh, you know, uh, over the top. Yeah, with that, that Jim Steinman, Bruce Springsteen kind of uh, vibe. Yeah, no, I, 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 he's a great arranger, uh, and a great composer, and they they are. Him and uh, Richard O'Brien, and th there's an actual composer of this that I I'm forgetting the name of. Uh, yeah, R Richard Hartley and Jim O'Brien, or not Jim O'Brien, gosh. Jim Johnny O'Brien. <laughs> and Jim Steinman, I definitely going for the same kind of vibe between Bad Out of Hell and this movie. Uh, this just with an even more kind of theatrical kind of thing. Yeah. I still think somebody needs to adapt that into a, a stage show. That would be good. So we we now meet uh, Frankenfurter. He just kind of walks around them as like, "Hey, I'm sexy. I'm making a man. Uh, if you want to meet him." And that's kind of it from the song, from what I remember. Yeah, it's 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 mostly an introduction of himself, telling people like, "This is who I am." Don't Brad and Janet. Don't be all judgmental. Yeah, don't judge a book by its cover. So yeah, then he he leads them up. If I'm not mistaken, to show uh, his creation, he's obviously a Franken, Doctor Frankenstein kind of riff. Uh, there's a lot of Frankenstein in this movie. Yes. And so, yeah, he shows uh, them all his lab, which I I really like the set design of the lab. Uh, it's very kind of <laughs> bright red. I don't know. It's just a good vibe. And then they start flipping switches. He's got Riff Raff helping him as his Igor. Which it was already kind of obvious that that was what Riff Raff is kind of designed after. Yeah. Uh, he starts uh, squirting in colored, rainbow colored condiments, I guess, yes. into the, that's the how tank. You, that's how you color your humans that you make yeah. from other body parts. Yeah. Uh, and then Rocky is born. And I feel like this is one of the weaker songs of the movie. I felt like that was the ultimate dud. And that's probably why it's not on the soundtrack. Yeah, it's not on the soundtrack. He, he's just like, yeah, he's a, it, it's a very kind of awkwardly shot scene too. He like pops out and now he's hanging from the rafter thing. Yeah, it was really, yeah. That was probably the moment in the movie where I, we get our first hint of, 
oh god what the hell is going on yeah i'm guessing it was like a, a bigger stunt they wanted to do but realized they didn't know how to do that yeah <laughs> or something like that maybe it just got awkward in the editing room i don't know yeah the um this number is also weird just in general with the choreography of uh frankenfurter running around chasing rocky as he's singing and enjoying life New, mm-hmm. new newborn man boy yeah and uh and janet's all like oh, i don't like muscle people and then she looks at brad trying to <laughs> yeah. make him happy and then and then yeah frank and sings the i'll make you a man yes in just seven days and then janet says oh i like muscle men yeah, I think the I guess the only the important thing to glean from this, if I I don't remember if they had already hinted at it before, is that uh, Frankenfurter likes to control everything around him, and he's kind of jealous of other people, you know, liking the things he likes. I guess, yeah, like he wants Rocky to be his own thing. Mm-hmm. And then I think Eddie is like right after that, right? He just plows out of in nowhere in the, the middle of uh, yeah, like right at right at what feels like the end of in just seven days. I'll make you a man. Uh, he flies out of this uh, freezer. Yes, in the in the in motorcycle. The, on the Bust motorcycle, wall, singing and um, at, at, it, with we, a big head wound, singing yes. "Hot Patootie, Bless My Soul." And we haven't talked much um, about how these like midnight showings work, but usually, you know, it's there's a shadow cast underneath the screen dressed up as the characters that will kind of mime the songs and they'll they'll kind of lip sync along and i've heard that at one in particular one i forget where it is that uh someone straight up drives uh, i'm guessing this is an outdoor theater someone drives you know a motorcycle around the crowd oh wow uh, which which sounds kind of intense and dangerous but uh would be terrifying yeah it'd be very entertaining to see though oh yeah if i wasn't sitting on you know the outer edges of the, the audience yeah but yeah, also something I, I guess I should have mentioned way earlier back um, at, at these shows, uh, people will often like yell out every time characters are introduced. They have certain phrases and stuff and it's different from theater to theater. But common ones for Brad are asshole. When, yeah. when he introduces himself as Brad Majors, you yell out asshole every time he does that. Or with Janet, people often yell slut. Um, yeah, that's one of the we'll get to that. <laughs> but yeah, there's a handful of like little kind of things that uh people will say along with the show uh but yeah like i said it differs from theater to theater uh and i I forget if there's anything big that you do at the eddie moment but here he is uh he has a big wound on his head which um i i never realized i i googled around so i guess i'm breaking the you know doing this from memory kind of uh thing here that uh, apparently his brain, a good half of it, was used to create Rocky. Most yes. of Rocky's brain is from Eddie, hence Eddie being in the freezer with his head cut open. Yes. Uh, Ed, half of Eddie's brain was put into the new guy because uh, Frankenfurter liked Eddie, Eddie's mind, but did not like his body. He wanted a muscle man. And so he took the good parts of Eddie and put it in rocky yeah yeah none of this very explained in the movie. important information is in the movie (laughs) but yeah to us it's just a man and a motorcycle and columbia seems very excited about it they they got Mm -hmm. a relationship that i feel like you you figure out here um and then in uh in true kind of horror movie homage probably for the first time in the movie other than just like the vibe of the movie 
and the world. Uh, Frankenfurter murders a dude. In front of everybody. With an axe. Yeah. Frankenfurter asserts his dominance, you know. He, he's the boss of the show, trying to think what, what happens next. There, is this just the bedroom scene after that? or is I there think more? they all just go to bed. Yeah. Let's go to sleep and then after we get witnessing the, murder. Yeah, then we get the probably most problematic sequence in the entire movie. Yeah, yeah, I guess we we could talk about that now, and then you know maybe go back to when we get to the, how is it is. But yeah, yeah, Frankenfurter, um, what's it called? And I don't know. I, I guess looking at this through the lens of kind of the the bisexual angle, it's interesting, and I and I see why people kind of like found this amusing. Um, this scene because he he seduces Brad, or they they seduce Brad and Janet. And the, you know, one after another, and they both yeah. react in the same kind of way. But it seduce, I guess, is a little bit uh, light. It, it's kind of assault, uh, is what it, actually it, it, happens. Yeah, it, it's it's basically assault. But I can I can under, uh, understand a I guess a less enlightened seventies, just like yeah. This I mean, James Bond was doing this in every movie. Uh, oh, absolutely. To a grosser way, too. Mm-hmm. It, it, this was this is a hundred percent a how has it aged kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's still, yeah, it may, yeah, a little uncomfortable nowadays. I think Janet turns him down in the movie, or does she not? I think they both turn him tell. down, but then change their mind. Is okay, how Janet it works. changed her mind. I couldn't tell. They both changed their mind, but after saying no, and then him being like, "Oh, come on, come on, it'll be fun." Okay, I couldn't. I, I couldn't. I couldn't tell. I thought Brad didn't change his mind. Brad said okay, and Janet didn't. But okay. So they both get, they both get seduced, and then Janet goes out for a stroll, and gets shown footage. Uh, meanwhile, Rocky has escaped his like thing after Riff Raff. That's right, Riff Raff and uh, and Magnolia uh, are are messing with them. Magenta. Yeah, Magenta. There we go. Yeah, um, yeah, they're messing with them, and then they do the Frankenstein's monster riff where he's scared of fire. Yeah, and so meanwhile, Janet sees the footage of Brad and and Frank hooking up. That's and, right. Um, and then she gets flustered and frustrated and then runs into Rocky and then uh, she wants him to touch a, touch a, touch a, touch her. While, uh, while Mag- Magenta and Columbia um, are, are mocking her on the, on yeah. the monitor. Everyone's watching each other. Everyone's uh, laughing at each other here, getting mad at each other. Lots, lots of TVs, uh, lots of cameras going on. And uh, then Dr. Everett Scott shows up at the door, and Frank thinks that Brad and Janet were spies. I do like the uh, the introduction of him a lot. I like, uh, he, he, you know, they, Frank Inferter starts magically pulling him through the walls, and then... <laughs> They all yell, "Great Scott!" when uh, when he busts in, and mm-hmm. at uh, at the live shows I've seen of this, this is when you throw your toilet paper that you have brought uh, around, you know, because Great Scott Scott uh, a brand of toilet paper. And so they uh, he thinks Brad and Janet are spies, and they're saying no, it's not true. And Everett Scott says, "I don't know why they're here. I'm here looking for my nephew Eddie." And he says a really good line coming up. He's uh, and this is a one of those looking down the can, or you know, I'm guessing at the stage show, looking out at the audience. I knew he was in with a bad crowd, but it was worse than I imagined. Aliens. 
<laughs> and now we it's revealed these these Transylvanians are aliens, if there was any doubts before. The aliens. And so they go and sit at a dinner table where Everett Scott sings about how Eddie was a no-good kid. But it's a fun song. It is a fun song. Oh, they also hint that they are eating Eddie. Uh, yes. The ham hock that uh, Dr. Frankenfurt is chopping up is, is somehow Eddie's leg, I guess. Yes. And in the end of the song, he rips off the sheet thing. Eddie, 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 Daddy, Eddie. Yes. Which the the props like for that, it looks so goofy. It looks so fake. Uh, real, real plasticky going on. Oh, yeah. It does not look like a loaf of meat. It, it looks kind of like, you know, a doll that you would have in an anatomy class. Uh but way uglier and yeah. and less anatomically correct. <laughs> yeah. But everybody's freaked out and horrified that they may have just eaten the former delivery boy, Eddie. I didn't even know he was a delivery boy. When, when did... yeah, I looked that up too. I cheated. <laughs> yeah, he was. he's a delivery boy huh. who delivered packages to the, the, the castle and then... Frankenfurter took him in, okay. And Columbia, and and then they they uh, Frankenfurter started getting jealous of him and Columbia, and then there was like all this drama that came out of uh, all this information that they refused to tell you in the movie. All right, all right. Um, and then afterwards, this was one of the more confusing moments to me. Maybe I missed a few frames or something, but you know, everyone reacts to the Eddie body. But for some reason, Frankenfurter goes after Janet and then starts singing, you need to watch yourself, Janet Weiss or whatever. I don't remember or I didn't glean why her specifically. He He's trying to like a cost here. I, 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 Is it I because of got, the Rocky thing? I thought it was because of the Rocky thing and it was just badly timed. Like they couldn't okay. get the timing right okay. on his reaction towards that, that because they wanted to get the plot to go move forward with Everett Scott, uh-huh. they, and so like structurally they couldn't figure out how to get, you know, do one thing or another. I see. I did like a lot. And I, I've seen this gag used in other stuff before. Uh, I don't know where it came from, but I, I liked the gag a few scenes ago when, uh, when, when Rocky and Janet are first revealed to, you know, be in the little chamber thing. And, yeah. uh, the camera keeps cutting with Janet, Dr. Scott, Janet, Bad. Rocker, Janet, Dr. Scott! Janet! Bad Rocker! Janet! Dr. Scott! Janet! Bad Rocker! Actually had me laughing. Yeah. Old fashioned gag. (laughs) But yeah, and so like, yeah, everybody all freaks out and uh, Frankenfurter just says, you know, screw it and turns them all to stone. Yep, yep. And then I don't think anything significant happens other than, you know, him dressing everyone up, dresses himself up, talks about how hard it is to have a good time. Puts them on the stage, then uh, starts singing and bringing everyone back in front of the big RKO tower. Yes. Yeah, they they sing about Rose Tint My World. And uh, Rocky's a little more, or not Rocky, uh, Frankenfurter's kind of, his character is revealed in a more vulnerable moment. Mm -hmm. And then, and then. uh, And I really love all these songs here. Yeah. And I wonder how mm-hmm. much they paid for that uh, to get that pool and just this whole set, like, set up. Yeah. It, it was uh, interesting. What a pretty cool visually. And then Riff Raff and Magenta are break break the party, you know, bust in, stop the song. 
and uh, they they got their space their their hard sci-fi space cadet outfit, very like Flash Gordon kind of feel, mm-hmm. and they have uh, what is it antimatter rays, something like that. And yeah, they they're threatening uh, they're threatening Frank and Furter that he's not coming back home with them because I guess he he's screwed up here. He's gone uh, too far. Yeah. And so they blast him, blast him with the antimatter gun. Rocky takes his papa, climbs to the top like King Kong. He's like yelling like King Kong, and then they fall yep. off. And Brad and Janet and Dr. Scott get out before the rest of the Transylvanians do the time warp once again and go back home. Yeah. And uh yeah, and so they're gone and then and then the narrator or the criminologist uh, closes it all out. Uh, did did you find that the King Kong thing was funny at all? Or was that, uh, I'm curious what your reaction was on that. I found it amusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good But word. I was still being utterly confused at what all was going on. So like, maybe if I was to rewatch it, yeah. I'd be like, oh, okay, I, I like the King Kong thing. Yeah, like, but uh, now that I know what's going on, but. Because yeah, Riff Raff and uh, Magenta hop in and it's like, wait, yeah, I forgot they were even gone, to be honest. Uh, and um, yeah. why, why are they mad at Frankenfurter? And what, what's going on? Yeah. It's not super clear. Uh, I, I feel like all of these kind of beats happen very quickly to the point where you're just kind of scratching your head and like, wait, why, why, why is this here? And where are the motivations behind it? Interesting, goofy time. Uh, I wish there were more just flat out jokes but i don't know if they would really fit uh in the movie um i, I feel like comedy wise it, it it's good for what it is I, I feel like the kind of the the weird tone of the musical kind of keeps a, a good kind of goofy angle throughout and i, I don't know if like kind of shoehorning in more jokes would have worked super well i don't know if that's if he wanted to make it into a flat out comedy, I know in one interview, Richard O'Brien was saying he, when he, when the stage show first came out and people started laughing at stuff and like, he didn't expect it to even be as much comedy as it actually was. Like it was a parody of a lot of these movies, but at the same time, like he didn't go out of his way to make quote unquote jokes. Yeah. yeah. And, um, it was it was a stone cold nostalgia but, experience yeah, for him. That's interesting. Like he was he was very serious when he wrote it as a as just like an ode to the movies he loved. I wonder if yeah, by the time you know they made the movie, if that thought had changed, or if this was all just kind of the director making these kind of more comedic choices. Then oh, I think they he he knew that they were gonna like to have fun with it, mm-hmm. like and so I, I and and Jim Sharman who uh directed it like he he had directed the stage show before that okay and so like they they were pretty much uh working hand in hand the whole way through and i i didn't know this till i was you know doing the clicking around for this episode but uh there's also another musical that they made and me and that was turned into a movie shock as well treatment. called yeah shock treatment uh did not uh did not keep the same audience, same, that's for sure. Yeah, I've never seen that one or listened to the music or anything. Hello, I'm Dr. Cosme McKinley. I'd like to tell you about a new film from the gang that gave you the Rocky Horror Show. Shock treatment. 
Jim Richard O'Brien, I, I guess, um, uh, was there anything in particular, like, other than, you know, what his basic goal for the movie was that you found? I, I don't know. Yeah, I know you usually look stuff up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I kind of uh, found a lot about how it all kind of came together. Um, Richard O'Brien had been performing in a few musicals in the early 70s, namely, like, Jesus Christ Superstar and Hair uh, out in England and, uh, during that time as an unemployed actor on stage shows, he started kind of thinking about what kind of musical he would like to see. He was a big fan of, uh, B movies, rock and roll and, uh, glam rock and started to think about a musical as an homage or parody of like all of those things. And, uh, most of the ideas for the Rocky horror show were written by him over just a single winter as a way of passing the time. And at, uh, at some point later, Jim Sharman, who directed him for Jesus Christ Superstar, along with Richard Hartley, who was a musician that was working in uh, London's Royal Court, where Sharman was directing a play at the time, were over at Richard O'Brien's house, and O'Brien sang them a few of his songs, uh, including Science Fiction Double Feature and Hot Patootie. And... Uh, yeah, and Jim thought the songs would make a great show. Um, shortly after that, Charmin was uh, given the opportunity uh, to do another play at the Royal Court, and he agreed with the caveat that he'd be given permission to use the smaller upstairs stage for his own creative endeavor for three weeks. And uh, so O'Brien, he told O'Brien about it and said, I, I kind of want to do a show based on some of the songs you showed me. And so O'Brien went back and... Uh, wrote some more songs and about 20 pages of dialogue. And um, he says it grew quite a bit during the rehearsals. The, uh, the song science fiction double feature was written without a musical in mind, but it has the line, see androids fight androids fighting Brad and Janet. And uh, he had written it because to him, those names seemed like perfect cookie cutter names to exemplify the clean cut boy girl relationship that all those B movies had. But now those were characters in the show. So he had to write Damn It, Janet, and then a few other songs, and it, it really started to come together. Sherman, uh, Sharman uh, brought in Brian Thompson as the production designer, a man who eventually won a Tony Award for Best Scenic Design for the 1996 Broadway version of The King and I. Sharman also brought in Sue Blaine for costume design. She was later credited for creating the template for punk rock fashion through her designs on Rocky Horror. Interesting. Yeah. I got that really wrong. Just just uh, the other way around. But um, musical director was uh, Richard Hartley, was the composer. And, and uh, you know, like he, he... Question. What do Rocky Horror Picture Show and Monty Python and the Holy Grail have in common? Released very similar time, but that's probably not what you ask him. Hmm. Um, let me think. Let me think. They both have musical numbers. Uh, I don't think that's it either. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. What are you going for here? They were both produced by Michael White, who was brought in as a stage producer for the stage show. Nice. Um. Yeah. Originally, the show's title was going to be "They Came from Dented High." <laughs> 
But uh, Charmin suggested they change it to the Rocky Horror Show. And uh, the original cast was similar to the uh, for the most part to the film. Tim Curry played Dr. Frankenfurter, who had actually heard rumblings about the show when they were getting it together. But one day he ran into Richard O'Brien on the street, who told him that he had just been to the gym to see if he could find a muscle man who could sing. And Tim Curry was like utterly perplexed. He's like, what, what, why, why did you, why do you need him to sing? And O'Brien then told him about the Rocky Horror Show and the musical and then gave Tim Curry the script, which uh, Curry thought, quote, boy, if this works, it's going to be a smash. Um, right. Janet. Yeah, he was right. Uh, Janet uh, in the uh, stage show was played by British singer Julie Covington, famous for recording the original version of Don't Cry For Me, Argentina on the 1976 concept album Evita. Brad was played by Christopher Malcolm who's got a, a bunch of credits, but he's most famous for his role in Empire Strikes Back as the rebel fi- pilot who finds Han and Luke in the snow on Hoth. Riff Raff was also was played by Richard O'Brien. Magenta was played by Patricia Quinn. Columbia, Nell Campbell. Um, Rocky Horror in the stage show was a man named Rainer Borton. Both Eddie and Everett Scott were played by Patty O'Hagan, and the criminologist was played by Jonathan Adams, who played Dr. Everett Scott in the film. Um, and after two previews, the show premiered at the 63 seat theater upstairs in the Royal court there. It ran for three weeks where it was a smash hit both critically and commercially, which allowed it to be transferred to the Chelsea classic cinema nearby. And that sat 230 people for two months. And then they found a quasi permanent home at the uh, 500 seat Kings road theater. And there it ran until March of 1979. Uh, for nearly six years. So even though the play was a hit, O'Brien was a bit perplexed when Hollywood came knocking about a film adaptation. Quote, we were a fringe theater event that hadn't even gone to the West End. And not only were we allowed to make it into a film, we also all got to star in it with uh, stage director Jim Sharman directing. The only imperative from 20th, 20th Century Fox was that we include some American actors. So they swapped out Julie Covington for Susan Sarandon for Janet, and they swapped out um, Christopher Malcolm for Barry Bostwick uh, for Brad, and uh, then they they swapped out Patty O'Hagan for Meatloaf, and uh, they were good. But the film initially did really well only where it premiered, the Rialto Theater in London and the UA Westwood in Los Angeles, but did not do well at all anywhere else. It was actually pulled out of its eight opening cities due to small audiences. And a planned New York City opening on Halloween night was canceled. Fox then re-released the film near college campuses, double-billed with Brian De Palma's rock music film parody, Phantom of the Paradise. But that didn't work either. So then a Fox executive named Tim Deegan got an idea. So the John Waters film Pink Flamingos as well as the 1936 anti-marijuana propaganda flick Reefer Madness, were starting to become huge throughout the United States as midnight movies. He, uh, he, he thought, what, what if we tried it with this? And so he talked distributors into airing the movie at midnight showings. So they gave that a show, started uh, um, on April Fool's Day of 1976 at the Waverly Theater in New York. And then in May of that year, they also uh, uh, played it as a secret film at the first Seattle Seattle International Film Festival. And uh, very quickly, 
it became a nationwide phenomenon and became the longest running release in film history. I didn't realize it, it technically still had that. I don't know. That's cool. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, that that is the history of the picture show. I have never heard of Brian De Palma having a rock horror co- musical. Uh, and I kind of want to watch that. Now. Yeah. I'm going to look it up. I got curious too. Phantom of the Paradise. I guess from there, let, let's uh, let's talk about how, how this movie holds up to time. Um, recently had a a kind of like new screen adaptation i think for television yeah they did one of those funky live things where everybody's lip syncing but it was a live performance and and it was um laverne cox and this one played uh dr frankenfurter yes who is uh if you don't know she uh, she stars co-stars on um orange is the new black on netflix uh, and she's an actual transgender woman and so I feel like they did that for obvious reasons here because the depiction in 1975 with this movie of Frankenfurter uh, as this transvestite, that, that, that's what they call themselves, uh, is much, it, it doesn't really line up with our modern idea of what that means and what, you know, that, that kind of identity is. Yeah. And I, I can only, you know, I, 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 I only can speak so much myself here, but yeah, I have to go on what I've read and what people have told me, you know, but yeah, it, uh, it, it just, I feel like at the time that kind of name was just synonymous with crossdresser and, uh, it, it meant more of a fetish kind of thing it, it, rather than an actual human identity kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it is weird looking at it, though, like from the lens of Richard O'Brien's kind of self-examination, who like uh, apparently in their other works, like there is also kind of, you know, questions on gender identity. And since then, he has said that he's probably like, you know, if there were more boxes to put himself in, he he would probably check others. So it sounds like he kind of has gender queer kind of thoughts about themselves. Yeah, Um, he's he's uh... there's. There's also been some quotes uh, that that he has said that have kind of really um, rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, oh, yeah. and uh, <laughs> I kind of agree. Um, he, he's he's kind of made some, uh, I think it's called turf turfy opinions, and tried to backpedal over them too, in weird ways. So basically saying like you you can't actually be a woman if you're transgender. Yeah. Saying like I support people who get you know. Uh, get get sex changes and I I know it's hard for them but yeah yeah it's very uh yeah kind of gross yeah he's um, uh yeah he's he's not a, a shining example of understanding other people yeah I think it's you know gender or not a gender uh, generation gap um, yeah that's probably that's absolutely what it is yeah I feel like it's not that hard if if you're older even if you are seventy years old to just you know, listen to somebody you know yeah. To, to look this look this up and talk to some people and realize what you're saying and how that can can hurt people in negative ways yeah 
I'm curious if other than all of that, if you had anything to add about the age of the movie. I mean, we talked about the uh, yeah the whole quote unquote assault sequence earlier. Yeah, um, which is, is gross nowadays. Yeah, yeah you know, like we're kind of brushing through it because we're going through the plot. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh the um yeah definitely a um a hole in terms of uh, female character agency in the movie. Like they don't, mm-hmm. there's not really a whole lot for them to do there. Janet's kind of a non-character. Um, yeah. yeah, that's true. We know more about Columbia around her character than we do about like her character itself. Yeah, and, but uh, everything that she does is just like, oh, I loved Eddie. It's more so just that, like that yeah, driving all, the plot. All she really yeah. had going on. She's a plot and, driver um, than a, more than a character. And then Ma- and, and Magenta's kind of just riff riff raps kind of sidekick yeah yeah that that's that's about as uh let i i guess the way i'd put this movie is uh i i I quote somebody else um i can't remember if i read it or if i i listen the other uh like last week i listened to an episode of the bechtel cast which had a group of uh women as well as a couple uh uh transgendered people listening or uh, talking about the movie and uh, how it aged from their perspectives. And mm-hmm. they kind of came to the conclusion that it did a hell of a lot for the LB- LGBT community, LGBTQ community at the time. Yeah. But since then, it's been done a lot better by a lot of more talented people. Yeah, that's a good and way. And they also it. kind of compared this to like the, uh, the Disney version of like... Uh, <laughs> you know, like that whole community, it's like kind of like your first toe to dip into it. And, uh, uh, the community itself around Rocky horror also has a record of being a little more problematic than need be. Uh, interesting. Yeah, like lots of, uh, there were, there were lots of stories around people being, uh, shamed and hated by, uh, straight white people who, also at that very show are wearing a corset and, and silk leggings. Yeah. It's, yeah that, that, that people that take it all as a joke. I yeah. guess. And, um, and then like, there's the whole, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a few things they do in those live, live community shows that I'm, I'm hoping have, uh, changed since a lot of these stories I've, I read about had, uh, you know, like that these people experienced, I've hoped they've changed since then, but like, uh, for the most part, it's a very loving, fun community. And so there was just, I guess, yeah, just I mean, I'm guessing maybe smaller towns. and All you have to do is get 20 people together and get a uh, and get, get a, a theater um, or even just like, you know, a room on board and you can put one of these together. Yeah. So it, it's kind of it's going to be hit or miss, like who's putting it together and how they're treating the material or even what their opinions are on you know, you know, different, I, I guess, alternative sexualities and stuff. Oh, like this is all, it's all kind of going to be, you know, bit based on who's putting together the show and that's a, it's, it's a grab bag. Yeah. But yeah, that's about all I got. Um, before we go, I got some more tidbit, little bits and factoids. If you wanted okay. to do that. Yeah. I was trying to think, I, I did want to also mention that like, you know, it, I think we've talked about some other older movies. Uh, 
And I don't remember, I, I know majority of them are, end up being pretty white for the, you know, in the 70s oh, and, yeah. and beforehand. But th this movie, I think the only black person in it was the driver at the start yep. with Brad and Janet, which, you know, even adds this extra wrinkle of like, oh, yeah, that's that's the only person of color is <laughs> the, the driver. driver. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really white movie. Yeah. That's a very good point. But yeah, what what are your other fun facts, and then we could close this out because this went uh this, this is another long one. Yeah. Okay. Um. Little of a quick factoid. Uh, Tim Curry, when he was putting together the character of Frankenfurter, um, he 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 couldn't decide on an accent or a voice, and so he he first started American, and then um, then he did Cockney, but then he he decided. Frankenfurter should be unspeakably posh. And so it dawned on him to model his voice after the Queen of England. I thought that was... A, oh, yeah, I could see that. Um, and then uh, I've got a, a list of homages and references that were made throughout the movie. Okay. Uh, in the opening song alone, you get references to the day the, the day the Earth Stood Still, Flash Gordon, The Invisible Man, King Kong, It Came From Outer Space... Dr. X, Forbidden Planet, Tarantula, The Day of the Triffids, Night of the Demon, and When Worlds Collide. And m most of these are pretty blatant. Like, they're just saying yeah. the names of the movies. Absolutely. Then, uh, <laughs> during Damn It, Janet, there are people dressed like the uh, American Gothic painting. A coffin appears unexpectedly in the song. Could also be a reference to an episode of um, the, Outer, uh, the Outer Limits called uh, The Form of Things Unknown. The narrator of the film could be a reference to Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, oh, I could see that. Uh, the castle's exterior was Oakley Court, a Victorian Gothic country house that was used as an exterior for many films such as The Man in Black, The Curse of Frankenstein, Dracula, The Brides of Dracula, Nightmare, The Dark Old House, The Evil of Frankenstein, Witchcraft, Die Monster Die, The Reptile, <laughs> The Plague of the Zombies, The Projected Man, and many others. Um... Rocky in the tank covered in bandages is a reference to the curse of Frankenstein. The, uh, the love and hate tattoos on Eddie, uh, is a reference to the film, the night of the hunter, uh, Janet ripping off some of her clothing to bandage. Rocky is a reference to Tarzan, the ape man, um, dinner being served with a body on the table in the table is a reference to Alfred Hitchcock's film rope, uh, as well as toasting the murder victim. And then um, lastly, um, seeing this film as a, uh, a metaphor for the glam rock movement where uh, Frankenfurter is almost toe-to-toe -to -toe with Ziggy Stardust, a rock and roll god sent from another planet to bring us music from the stars. Uh, Bowie wore dresses and jumpsuits as Ziggy, so a corset and stockings isn't too far of a logical leap. Eddie, mm, that's true. former lover of Frank and Columbia, had half his brain cut out to create Frankenfurter's new physically perfect Charles Atlas creation. Hot patootie, bless my soul. Throwback to sock hops and greased hair and poodle skirts in the early days of rock and roll. When Frankenfurter chops him to bits with an axe in front of his guests, he murdered, as Bob Seger would call it, that old time rock and roll. <laughs> uh, Interesting. Yeah. The creation of Rocky is a perfect metaphor for what Glam was. This is all from an article about this. Uh, I'll link it in the website whenever I finally update the website. I've been behind a, a few weeks. Um, is a perfect metaphor 
for what glam was all about. Now, a lot of this article is kind of saying it as if glam rock is shamed in the film, but at the same time, Richard O'Brien has gone out and said that that's, that's, that was a, like some of his favorite music. So I don't know if this was all subconscious, but, um, looking at Rocky as a metaphor for glam rock, the sincerity of rock at its inception provided, or perhaps you might say stolen from Eddie combined with an admiration for youthful human beauty and a preoccupation for sexual desire. As Frank says to Rocky after Eddie is dead, don't be upset. It was a mercy killing. He had a certain naive charm, but no muscle without physical expressions of identity. Glam rock doesn't work. Frankenfurter as glam rock seduces Brad and Janet into the lifestyle successfully until it gets out of hand, eventually forcing everyone to be a part of his floor show. Similarly, Ziggy Stardust became too much for David Bowie to handle. And he dropped the character in 1973 riff raff and magenta break up the party quote riff Frankenfurter. It's all over. Your mission is a failure. Your lifestyle is too extreme. Uh, this is the author uh, of this article quote, the metaphor comes clear. It's the vote of extremism that really was the nail in the coffin for this artistic era. Though glam may have preached new ideas and identities to a generation of young people, it couldn't sustain itself. It was too much exploration all at once and was destined to fade away. Yeah, that's a cool read on the movie. Yeah. Or the scene you know, and, the, and the play. I, uh, I'll, um, I'll put that into the... Uh, the podcast description as well. If you scroll down past the uh, timestamps. Okay. Cool. Cool. As well as the, uh, a link to that, um, the Bechtel cast is what it's called. Yes. Right? The Bechtel cast. Yeah. Cause I feel like they could give a much more nuanced and, um, probably more, much more educated, uh, conversation on, uh, on the, the, the grow, the grossness of Richard <laughs> O'Brien's comments and on, um, and just in general on how this is aged than us. I got a weird question uh, for you. What's going on? Do you remember? Okay. So do you remember that crappy 1999 Dungeons and Dragons adaptation movie? In a faraway world. All people deserve to be free and equal. The child is not fit to govern an empire. The forces of darkness. You can control dragons. With the dragon army at my command. I can crush the this has got to be some twisted magic experiment gone seriously wrong. Have threatened to conquer a kingdom. What can I do to stop Profion? If you can oh, yeah, with the uh, the kid from Chucky 3. Yeah, I remember that. You know Richard O'Brien's the uh, the, the yes, Thieves Guild yes. guy? He, he works with Dimidar, yeah, right? Yeah, he's the he's the Thieves Guild guy. That's right. Yeah, I remember yeah, that. I just, his overacting in that movie, like that's probably the only good moment of that whole movie. <laughs> I don't know. Marlon Wayans was kind of goofy in that. Yeah, that's a that's a weird movie. I, I, but that was the only thing I'd ever seen that uh, riff raff in before ever seeing Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, I guess I, I never connected those dots. But you say that, and I immediately was like, oh yeah, that, that was yeah, that was them. Yeah, it was there. Yeah, they're right there. But um, I guess we don't have time for a new segment. I thought of, but it's yeah. It, I think we've gone a little long this time. Right. But next time. I'm excited for new new segments, new talks, new jokes. Because two weeks from now, we will be talking about the 2001 uh, comedy, the, the comedy, the procedural comedy, I should say, uh, Legally Blonde, starring Reese Witherspoon 
and Luke Wilson and the lady who was in a bunch of the Christopher Guest movies. And I'm blanking on her name, but she's hilarious. And Jennifer Coolidge. I think it'll be an interesting discussion because that's one I think I saw when I was really young and didn't like much, but I rewatched a few years ago and found it really hilarious. Okay. I think I'm I'm guessing my early judgments were, uh, you know, me being a young boy. I I don't know. That's a girl movie. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk about it, and I, I got no, no other podcast updates other than we we might be rum- there might be rumblings or we might have to uh, be having talks about doing a Chris Farley uh, special, but uh, we'll see. We shall see. Um, but I guess that's all I got. Do you have anything? I'm good. All right, go to gagrealpod at gmail dot com. Go to gagrealpod.com, reach out to us on, on the Facebook, the Twitters, whatever. Uh, if you want to have your comment read on the show about Rocky Horror Picture Show, about what uh, the, the Tenacious D and the Pick of Destiny, about Legally Blonde, obviously, uh, or about whatever. Because, uh, yeah, I don't know where I was going to go with that. But um, I guess ha- have a good one. Yes, have a have a good one. Keep it real. Gag real. Space, and this is how the message ran.